0: Good morning. Before we jump into this morning's message, I'd like to make another quick announcement, and that is, well, first of all, my name is Christian, and I'm one of the pastor elders here at Trinity, in case you don't know that. Very nice to meet you. Uh, But I do have a quick announcement to make before uh, we jump into the message. On June 21st, which is a Wednesday, we are going to have a church-wide activity Austin Mahan, who you may know as one of our members here, he has uh, very graciously invited us all to go in a kayak tour on June 21st. And so we're going to be doing a bioluminescence tour at 8.30 p.m., and you're all invited. Uh, This is a very generous gift from Austin to the church, and uh, we want you to be there. Uh, Now, I want you to hear this. It's not about kayaking, Okay. You're going to have a blast. You're going to see God's nature like firsthand, and it's amazing. But this activity is not about kayaking. And so we want you to be part of it because we want to spend time with you. Okay. And so if this, uh, whether kayaking is your preference or not, we would love for you to be there. Uh, So if you want to participate, you do have to be five or older. Um, And so five and older, everyone is welcome to join. Please do sign up. And now here's where I want to ask a huge favor, okay? Sunday after Sunday, we ask you guys to sign up for stuff. And here's what happens. The day before the event, a few of you will sign up, and the day of the event, a bunch of you will show up, uh, and we are happy that you do, right? So don't hear what I'm not saying. However, for this specific event, We can't do that, okay? Because if you show up that day, there's going to be no kayak for you unless you've signed up. And so could you please do me a favor and sign up? Go into our website, uh, trinityfla.org, and you can find a link there. I need you to sign up before the 14th. They need a week in advance. And so please go ahead and sign up, and this is going to be so much fun. The one thing uh, that I do want you to know is that the event is going to be free, but uh, we want to be generous to those that are going to give us the tour. So please bring some cash for tips, but other than that, it's just a free event, and we are super thankful for Austin and the Day Away Kayak Tours for their generous gift to the church. So June 21st, uh, put in your calendars and put another reminder to sign up today, okay? So thank you. All right. So let's get started with today's message. This morning, as uh, Tim read, we're going to be reading uh, the, the last or the second part of Titus chapter 1. Um, you may remember, if you've been here the last two weeks, that two weeks ago, Tim started, uh, he kicked off a new mini-series. It's a mini-series, not because we're not taking our time in a series, but because the book is really short. And so we're going through the book of Titus. And uh, as Tim introduced it a couple of weeks ago, he referred to the purpose of the letter, or to to the letter as a church manual. The the letter that Paul wrote to Titus works as a church manual, how church life should be done. Last week, Josiah went through verses 4 through 9 in chapter 1, where we saw that the very first thing that Paul is telling Titus to do is to appoint elders. Josiah reminded us that in his sovereign wisdom, God has reserved the office of elders for qualified men. Now, I want you to hear this. God didn't reserve the office of elders for men. He reserved it for qualified men. You see the difference there? (laughs) Now, for a reason I cannot fully understand, God has entrusted the leadership of his church, his precious bride, to fallible men. Having been ordained as an elder myself... I don't say this out of pride, but with a measure of holy fear, if I can be honest. As elders, we are acutely aware of our own weaknesses, of our limitations. We are very aware of this. We are especially mindful that we will one day be held accountable to God for how we lead and care for his church. The good news, church, is that The church or the success of the church of Jesus Christ does not depend on us. It does not depend on fallible men. It depends on Christ Himself. It depends on the great shepherd, Jesus Christ Himself, the head of the church. So today we will explore a passage that further explains one of the primary responsibilities of elders, which is the important task of ministering the word. As I preach this, I like to say that I am not preaching this from the high horse of perfection. I don't think that me or the elders are precisely nailing this. I'm not using myself as an example. I do, however, preach this with confidence, not confidence in my own abilities, but on the unwavering truth of God's right. word. Yeah. But before we get to the text, I want to read a couple of passages that you may be familiar with. These passages, I believe, might help us set up for today's text. As you know, the Bible often refers to pastors or elders as shepherds. That's where we get the term pastor, right? A shepherd. And the Bible also talks about Christians as sheep. This analogy is a very common picture in scripture. But sheep are actually not the only animal that Jesus used to describe his people, or to describe people. For example, in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34, we see this verse. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people uh, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a glorious day that will be! You see in this parable, Jesus tells us basically that there are two types of people. You have those who are his, whom he calls the sheep. And then you also have those that are outside the fold, that he calls goats. So Jesus then is telling us that there are some more sheep. There are those who are goats. But then, elsewhere in Matthew, in Matthew 7, he says this. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So you see, in Jesus' mind, in his analogies then, you have sheep, you have goats, and you also have wolves. In this parable, in this parable, Jesus tells us that there are false prophets among his sheep. And he calls them wolves. These are dangerous people who seek to divide, to confuse, and ultimately destroy those who are in Christ. Now Jesus encouraged his followers to be vigilant to be wise, and to be discerning in identifying such individuals and avoiding their influence. The reason I'm starting with this is that I think these three categories of sheep, goat, and wolf will help us understand today's passage. With that said, how about we jump into the text? I want you to read uh, and follow as I read verse, verse 9 who said, that says this. It says, Titus 1.9 says this. It says, He must hold firm, and he, again, being the elder, the shepherd, the overseer, the pastor, or however you want to call him, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word uh, as taught, so that he may also be able to give instruction and in sound, doct- in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, in ancient, in ancient writings, it was common to emphasize an item or a point by either putting it at the beginning or at the end of a text, of a list, if you will, and then expand on it. So as Paul is enumerating the qualifications for elders, he deliberately places this particular point last to draw our attention to its significance, and then he's going to elaborate on it. Paul says that the elder must hold firm to the the trustworthy word as taught. To hold firm here means that uh, he has to have a good grasp on the word of God. That the elder needs to hold firmly to the word of God. Now Paul here is emphasizing the importance of unwavering commitment to the true and reliable message of the scriptures. It implies that the elder then should be firmly rooted in the foundational truths of the faith, which is why precisely in 1 Timothy he says that they should not be newcomers. An elder should have a solid understanding of sound doctrine based on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. With that said, let me clarify. An elder does not have to be a scholar, but he has to be solidly grounded and rooted in sound doctrine. This means, too, that an elder should have a high view of Scripture. The elders need to see this word, the Word of God, the Bible that we hold. We need to see it as trustworthy, authoritative, inerrant, the revelation of God himself. And so here Paul is emphasizing a high view of Scripture. A respect right. and a good grasp on Scripture. I do want you to notice though that the emphasis Paul is placing is not primarily on the, on the gift of teaching. But rather on the elders high view of Scripture. Tim Chester says this, he says, The emphasis falls not so much on skills as on holding fast to the truth. It is not so much about an ability to teach as a passion for the truth. Sadly, though, people often rush to follow those who are well-spoken, charming, and charismatic. But much damage has been done by those who are gifted communicators, but are weak in their knowledge of Scripture. Paul, then, isn't so focused on the ability of the elder as much as he is in his character. After all, Paul, as eloquent as he was, as smart as he was, people made, uh, Paul made people fall asleep with his preaching, which, let me tell you, is a great relief as a preacher. You would not believe the number of people that fall asleep while I preach. <laughs> so in this first verse, Paul describes the main way shepherds should care for the sheep. He tells us that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word so that the elder can do two things. First, to instruct, and secondly, to rebuke. In other words, an elder is to guide the sheep and to protect them from false teaching. You know, in the past, shepherds had two important tools that they carried everywhere they went they had a staff and they had a rod. The staff helped them guide the sheep by gently pulling them back with its hook and showing them the correct path when they were going astray. But a rod they used to protect the sheep by scaring off predators. They used the rod to protect them, to fight off dangerous animals. In the same way, the word called the elder then, when it comes to the ministry of the word, is twofold. Elders too are called to guide their sheep in the right path and to protect them from predators. Here in, in verse nine, we see that an elder guides the flock with the light of the word. Paul tells Titus that the elder must be able to give instruction, not any kind of instruction, instruction, but instruction in sound doctrine. We must be able to handle the word properly and to teach it in accordance to the truth in it or to the truth in it and not the elders' own desires, whims, or personal opinions. The preaching of the word should be anchored and guided by good doctrine, not emotions, personal interests, or even political agendas. Church, we as elders need you. We need you to keep us accountable to these things that we're saying. If you ever hear from this very pulpit anything that is not in accordance to the word of God, Please let us know. And please hold us accountable. Our desire as elders here at Trinity Community Church is to be faithful to the Word of God to the best of our ability. You know, the Bible gives room for diversity of styles, diversity of methods of how we should teach the Word, but it gives no room for an elder to deviate from firmly holding unto the truth of Scripture. The main responsibility of the elder then is to guide the flock by instructing them in sound doctrine. Let me tell you, church, as elders, as your elders, we take this very seriously. When we were installed, every single one of us committed to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. And it is our desire to serve you faithfully in this way. Now, this leads me to my second point, which is that the shepherd protects the sheep from the wolves. And for this, I want to read verse 9 again, and then verses 10 and 11. And it says this, it says, He, again, the elder, must must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he, be, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, what they, ought to, what they ought not to teach. So the second responsibility that Paul speaks of here is the responsibility to rebuke those who contradict the word. You see, one of the recurring themes in all of Scripture, especially in the pastoral letters, is the, the idea of false teachers. Peter, in his second letter, goes as far as to say this. He says, but false teachers, this is 2 Peter one. he says, but false teachers also arose from among the people, Just as there might be? No. Just as there may be? No. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see, Peter's statement right here isn't ambiguous. There's no way around it. He says, there will be false teachers among you. Or as Jesus called them, wolves. There will be wolves among, among us. And church, we must be ready. So the question is, though, who are these wolves? False teachers are those who teach falsehood, those who seek to deceive and to derail the faith of the Christian. Now, false teachers are not only those that teach false teaching, but also those who, um, who reject correction. What do I mean by this? Well, I think Al Mohler puts it better than me. He says this. I heard him once say, I think there is in the New Testament a clear reservation of that title, not just for one who teaches falsely, but for one who is incorrigible, who resists correction. So there is a difference between false, false teaching and false teachers, if that makes sense. I, for one, I'm thankful that when I was teaching things that weren't accurate, because I was... I had people who were willing to correct me and to teach me sound doctrine. So not everyone that is currently teaching false teaching is a wolf. They may just be misdirected, misguided, and ignorant. Wolves are those that are teaching intentionally and who reject correction, that push away correction. Does that make sense? I think it's worth mentioning too that not everyone who disagrees with me is a false teacher. Not everyone that criticizes me is a false teacher. I may not like it, but there are people who will have a different understanding and interpretation on non-essential matters of Scripture. There will be be people around the world that will read the very Word of God, and on matters that are non-essentials, they might disagree with us. But that doesn't make him a false teacher. Disagreement on secondary or tertiary issues doesn't make someone a wolf. And though we as elders have the responsibility to protect the sheep by warning them of, war, of dangerous teachings or even the worldly things, the authority and responsibility of the elder towards false teachers is limited to the church, to the congregation. So there's a difference between the way that a shepherd deals with his sheep And the way that they deal with wolves. And there's also a completely different approach to the way that they deal with goats. As I mentioned before, Jesus refers to those outside the fold as goats. There's a difference between goats and wolves. Goats may be people who are ignorant of the gospel. People who may even at times might oppose the gospel in their ignorance. Wolves, on the other hand, are those who are inside the fold, inside the church, who are seeking to plant seeds of the vision, who are seeking to bring about this uh, confusion and division among the body of Christ. But the way that we interact with, go- with goats is very different to the way that we interact with wolves. What do I mean by this? As Christians, as sheep, if you will, we are surrounded by the world. We are surrounded by Goats, if you will. And I don't mean to be demeaning when I use the term goats. I mean, just using the words of Jesus. But as Christians, the way that we interact with goats is by leaning in in evangelism, by proclaiming the gospel to them and pointing them to the truth of the word. And that is not optional, by the way. That is the very man that Christ gave us all to go to the nations. To make disciples of the nations. And he could have easily said, go and make disciples of the goats. By turning them (laughs) into sheep, if you will. The way that we interact with the goats, with those outside the church, is by preaching the gospel. And we ought to do this boldly, but also with love and gentleness. You know what I fear though? That sometimes we fall into the trap of seeing everyone as a wolf. We may look at the state of the world and assume that everyone outside the church is a wolf when the gospel doesn't allow us to do that. Church, let us be careful not to call wolves those that Christ himself has elected for salvation, those that he has called and and, and called before the foundation of the earth to be his, his children. When we see everyone as a wolf, we do a great disservice to the gospel and to the witness of the church. So let us be careful. The power of the gospel compels us to go to the nations, to make disciples, rather than isolating ourselves and succumbing to the fear of the world. Church, what Paul is telling us here, he's not talking about people outside the church in general. He's talking about wolves that are inside the walls of the church. So how then do we interact with the wolves? As elders of the church, it is our responsibility to warn you against false teachers. So in verse 10, uh, verses 10 and on, Paul will describe these false teachers by giving us the marks of a wolf, if you will. Number one, wolves are empty talkers. Wolves are those people that say a lot when they have nothing to say. They use a lot of words to say absolutely nothing. Paul calls them empty talkers. Another mark of a wolf is those that are deceivers. There are people that say that which is contrary to Scripture, but they twist Scripture in order to make it say what they think it should say. This is deception. And the most dangerous wolf is the wolf that looks like a sheep. Three, the third mark of a wolf is those that add to the gospel. There are people that will take the beautiful gospel, the word of God, the gospel message, and they will add to it. The problem with this is that it looks pious. It looks holy. It looks like they take their, their faith seriously. But the second you add to the gospel, Paul calls that Anathema. Also, there are those who seek shameful gain. Those who use the word of God to gain for themselves riches, fame, or influence. It is not okay for a pastor to use a pulpit to buy himself an airplane. It is not okay for a pastor to use this pulpit for their own gain. Church, let us be vigilant. Let us be watchful, because there will be wolves. And I think in the era we live in, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, they're filled with stories of those that call themselves pastors. And then they were shown to be wolves. And so let us be watchful. Let us be vigilant. So what are we to do with wolves? Paul tells Titus that the wolves must be silenced. He says that the false teachers must be silenced. Now what does this mean? Well, I looked into the original Greek. And the verb to silence means that they need to be silenced. (laughs) It's very clear. False teachers should not have a platform in the church. False teachers should not have access to other sheep to proclaim a false teaching. They need to be silenced. Paul has no sympathy for wolves because the consequences of allowing wolves in the church are grave. He says that these wolves are upsetting and ruining entire households. I really wish I could say none of us have ever experienced this. But I bet... Many of us know those. Many of us have been part of those families that have been upset by false teaching. They have seen the fruit of the deception. And it is grave. This leads me to my third point, which is that the shepherd helps the sheep grow while warning them against the dangers that surround them. And for that, I want you to read with me verses 12, 13, and 14. It says this, it says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lacy gluttons." Those are some harsh words. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Let's talk about this passage. What in the world is Paul saying here? Let me ask you, is Paul here discriminating against Cretans? Is he racially profiling Cretans? Is he giving in to stereotypes of Cretans? Like back when I was in college, I was going out with this girl uh, who happened to go home for Christmas. And as she went home for Christmas, she met a teacher. She told her, hey, I'm, I'm talking to this Guatemalan guy. And the lady told her, run. Those Latinos, they always beat up their wives. Don't do it. Is that what Paul's doing here? (laughs) Is he racially profiling the Cretans? No. What Paul is doing here is actually something he often does. He is quoting one of the influencers of the time, if you will. One that they would respect. In this case, he is quoting the Cretan philosopher Epimenides, who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Epimenides had some harsh words for his fellow Cretans. But what Paul is doing here is that he's using this quote to diagnose the culture that surrounded this church. He is agreeing with the Pimenides uh, diagnose, diagnoses, uh, not so much to condemn the culture as to encourage the Cretans inside the church towards sanctification. I think it's worth mentioning what Paul is not doing here. And I want you to hear this. You know what Paul is not doing here? He is not culture warring. He is not condemning those who are out there. He is teaching Titus to pastor his congregation by warning them against the dangers of the age. Right. Titus's responsibility is to his sheep, not to the world outside the walls of the church. You know what would be really easy for Titus to do as a pastor? It would be easy for him to stand in his soapbox and tell the Cretans how bad things are out there. That'd be really easy. He might get an applause. He might get a Twitter following because he's condemning those out there. And yet, that's not what Paul is telling Titus. Titus's responsibility and the elders' responsibility is not to rebuke sharply those outside the church, but our responsibility is to instruct and rebuke those inside the church. Okay. By this, I don't mean that we shouldn't stand boldly for the truth of the gospel. That's not at all what I'm, what I'm saying. After all, we're in the middle of pride month. We're in the middle of accusations being lobbed our way day after day, calling us hateful. That's not what I'm I'm not saying just give in to that. Go pander to the world. No, no, no. Don't give in. Stand for what is true. Stand for what is right. As 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 a church of Jesus Christ, even while the culture is battering us with rainbow flags and moral relativism, we are called to stand firm, not to pander to the world and make allowances for what the Bible calls abominable. With that said, I want to reiterate that our responsibility as elders is not with the world out there. Our responsibility as elders is with those that God has called, to pa- called us to pastor. Which is, by the way, a good reminder of why we would love for you to become a member of the church. Because we are responsible for you. I want you to think about this that I heard our friend Juan say the other day. A couple of Sundays ago, he told his church, Church, if you're not a member, you don't have a pastor. If you're not a member of our church, we we, we want you here, and hear what I'm not saying. But we're not going to stand before the Lord being responsible for you. And this is besides my notes, so let me go back to my notes. But church, we as your pastors are called... To call out the sins and temptations of you. Not about the world out there. Should we warn you against the, the the schemes of the enemy outside? Absolutely. But instead of fighting every fight and controversy that's out there, we are called to pastor you. Paul tells Titus, your people, you know, by, by talking about the Cretans, he's saying your people are surrounded by a broken and morally corrupt culture. And you need to warn them against them. Was this meant to condemn and shame those outside the walls of the church? No. Paul again is speaking to the sheep, not to the goats or the wolves even in this point. Sure, these sheep maybe acted like wild sheep at times, but they were still sheep. And so he tells Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. He says, rebuke them sharply, not to shame them, not to condemn them. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Church, Paul is not so much calling them out as he is calling them up. He is calling them up towards something better. He is calling the Cretans towards holiness, Paul wants those in the Cretan church to live according to the Word of God and not to the world out there. As Josiah said last week, I think to TJ's quote quote the other day, he said, from theology flows doctrine, and from doctrine flows practice. You see, Paul is concerned with the way that the Cretan church was living. He was warning them against the spirit of the age, if you will. And church, just like the Cretans, you and I live in a broken world. We live in a dark place, in a morally corrupt and progressively more hostile culture. And Paul is calling us towards something much better. He is warning us against letting our culture and the world be what influences and shapes us. He is calling us out of hypocrisy and towards holiness. Paul wants the Cretans to be moved and shaped by the trustworthy word and not by the outrage or the trend du jour, right? Church, together, as the church, as the local church, we want to resist the influence of the world. But the only way we can do this is not by culture warring, but by growing in South Doctrine by devoting ourselves to the Word of God. As the elders of this church, we want to prepare you through the preaching of the Word from this pulpit. We want to prepare you by spending time in the Word and prayer in our community groups. We want to prepare you by teaching sound doctrine in our equip classes. Church, we want to equip you for the work of ministry can i ask you this morning are you taking advantage of those opportunities are you taking advantages advantage of, of, of all these opportunities that we have to show up, to shore up our faith and if not let me ask you how then are you strengthening your your faith how are you anchoring yourself in the trustworthy word how are you guarding yourself how are you being vigilant against what is battering us from outside the church? This leads me to my fourth point, uh, fourth point, which is verses 15 and 16. And here I want you to see that the shepherd also helps the sheep discern between, two, uh, between true faith and dead faith. <clears throat> Paul tells Titus in verse 15, he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for good work. So Paul here says, to the pure, all things are pure. If I'm honest, when I first read this, it sounded a little cryptic to me. Like, what in the world are you saying, Paul? But I think what he's saying is something that he has said in other places. You see, these false teachers that were in the Cretan church, they were adding to the gospel, remember? He calls them those of the circumcision party. They were saying, if you really want to be a good Christian, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be a better Christian, you need to get circumcised. Or you need to follow this program. Or you need to do these extra steps that are not in the Bible, but that will make you a better Christian. These people, these false teachers, were calling the Cretan church to refrain from things that the Bible didn't prohibit. But Paul is telling these Cretans, that's not how sanctification works. He says that for the Pure, all things are pure. Which reminds me of what he told us in Romans 14. And I don't expect you to remember everything that's said in Romans 14, but you might remember that in, in Rome, in the Roman church, there were these Christians who felt that they couldn't eat the meat that had been offered to pagan deities. Their conscience just wouldn't allow it. There were other Christians that were like, man, meat is cheap and I'm hungry and I'm going to eat it. You know, I belong to the Lord, so it doesn't matter who this has been sacrificed to. And so they both have a different, different things weighing in their conscience. And what does Paul say to them? He says this, he says, To the one that observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. So these people in Rome, they were interacting with, the, with meat, with the food, in different ways some were honoring the lord by not partaking of that meat others were were honoring the lord by thanking him for provision see that see do you see the difference and so what paul is telling us here is like for the pure all things are pure if the bible doesn't prohibit it it's okay for you to do it if you do it in a way that honors the lord Whether we eat or drink, we do all things for the glory of God. So while these false teachers were trying to bind their consciences, while they were trying to heap false guilt on them, Paul tells them as long as what they do is with a pure heart, and it's not prohibited by Scripture, then they can do it in peace, and they can glorify God through it. Church, the gospel makes us free. You see, these false teachers were given to to religious rituals. They loved looking pious. They followed rules. They gave the appearance of godliness. But verse 16 tells us that they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. Church, this is what we call hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is detestable to the Lord. So what Paul is doing here, he's not calling us to rituals and rules, but to godliness and freedom in Christ, which according to verse 1, if you may remember, comes from the knowledge of the truth. Church, this is precisely why Paul tells Titus that the shepherds need to hold firm to the trustworthy word. That's why he calls them to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those that contradict it. Because without the truth... <clears throat> without sound doctrine all we get is dead religion as I draw to my clothes this morning I want to remind us that false teachers were not the only ones that struggled with hypocrisy I think we are all prone to hypocrisy we love to present ourselves in a light that makes us look better With that said, we have to fight against the temptation of hypocrisy fiercely. We have to put hypocrisy that we will all find in our hearts, we have to put it to death. Jesus had some sharp words for the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. He said to them in Matthew 23, uh, Matthew 23, verses 27, 28, he said this, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, the thing about hypocrisy is that it comes from a bad understanding of the gospel. As Christians, we know that we should be walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. We know that, right? The problem is that it's not easy. And we often fail. And we often give in to sin. Progressively we grow out of these things. Progressively we get better. But the reality is that it's hard to walk in godliness at all times. We have in our in our lives, if you will, we have these gaps where we fail. We have these gaps between how we know we should live and how we actually live. And the hypocrite is not the person that falls into sin and has gaps, but the hypocrite is the person that fills these gaps by pretending to be virtuous. Kevin DeYoung says this, he says, The sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. That's true for all of us. The sin is in using the appearance of goodness to cloak the deeds of evil. The sin is in thinking that that who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God thinks you know, sorry, that whom God knows you to be. So church, can I ask, how do we fight hypocrisy? Well, godliness is the antidote to hypocrisy, right? Godly living is a responsibility of the Christian Christian. But godly living is hard. It's not something that we can do on our own. So instead of feigning virtue, instead of pretending we are something we don't, we look at our gaps and in in failures in the eye, and we lay them at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. And we confess our inability to do it on our own. Right. We remember that it is precisely in our weakness that His power is made perfect. Brother, sister, hear me out this morning. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to fake it any longer. Christ wants you as you are, and He wants to change your life. You know what? He knew you couldn't do it on your own, He knew you couldn't get your act together, He knew you could never make yourself presentable before God. And that is precisely why he came down to take your place. That is why he gave his life on the cross. That is why he paid for your sin. And he carried your shame. So that you could approach God just as you are. And have your life transformed. Not by the things that you do. But by the things that Christ did at the cross. This leads me. To my favorite moment of most services. And that is when we get to celebrate the good news of the gospel by partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you don't yet have your elements, we have some in the table in the back. But I do want to say something. If you're visiting here, if you are not yet a believer if you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask you to abstain from participating this morning. However, I do want you to observe. I want you to watch because what we are about to do is a beautiful thing. You see, the Bible tells us that before going to the cross, the last thing Jesus did was to have a meal with his disciples. This was no common meal. There he instituted what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And this morning, we too get to participate in this meal. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that when we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. At this moment, we're all preachers. At this moment, together, we are all proclaiming what Christ has done in our lives and the fact that he continues to work in our lives until he comes again. The New City Catechism that we've been reciting week after week describes communion this way. It says, the Lord's Supper is a celebration. I want you to see, it's a celebration. A celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. Church, let us celebrate. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. Now, let's pause here. The night when he was betrayed, knowing that Peter was going to fail him knowing that every one of the men sitting around the table would flee. After he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, let us remember together that Christ's body was broken for us, for our sake and in our stead, by eating this bread. Verse 25 says, in the same way he took the cup after after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, let us proclaim the Lord's death and the eternal life that means for us until he comes again by partaking of the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. And together we celebrate and remember what Christ has done and continues to do until he comes again. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand and respond with worship and singing?